So we are um, in the final topic of this series that we are talking, we're calling, um, uh, what does that mean? I think Iceland, when you were saying that, did you forget for a moment what the name of the series was? Yeah, I, th I feel like every time I'm like, what are we talking about again? What? Oh, what does that mean? That's right. That's the name of this series. I noticed the look on your face. I was feeling it there. So we've been um, looking at different words that um, show up in Scripture, kind of different places in Scripture, and oftentimes are thrown around in the church that don't necessarily carry a lot of meaning for us in normal life. They're not words that we would normally use in conversations or whatever. And uh, we've been having some fun just kind of wrestling through and talking through and learning about um, some different words. So the word for today, I'm not going to tell you what it is right now because it's suspense, you know. Um, it's actually one of my um, favorite concepts in Scripture. Um, I have come, and I'll kind of tell a little story about this uh, in a little bit, but come to really appreciate the topic for today as something that um, I think God really wants us to figure out, um, that it is really one of the things that I think if we, if we don't figure it out, we don't really have the hope of being the kind of church that God, that Jesus dreamed of and envisioned and put into motion during his life, that it's that critical of a thing, that we've got to figure this out. The cool thing today, and the pressure's off on you guys, we actually nailed this one. Like, you guys are great at this, so, you know, you can just sit back and relax and be like, oh, we already know how to do this. But you may not have realized you were doing it, and you may not have realized um, how, uh, how important it is. So uh, we're going to spend some time today looking at a couple of passages of, scriptures, uh, passages of Scripture from the book of Acts. So the book of Acts, and Wendy talked a bit about this a couple of weeks ago in uh, her message on discipleship, but the book of Acts... Um, follows the stories that we have in Scripture from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of Jesus' life. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write an account, each of them, of what happened through the course of Jesus' life. Most of, mostly they focused on what happened in his ministry from the time he was about 30 till 33 or 34 years old. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gives us this, give us the story of Jesus. And then Luke writes an add-on um, book or letter that's referred to as Acts. Uh, when you're looking in the Bible, you'll see the term or the, the title Acts. And Acts is essentially a history lesson of what happened immediately following Jesus ascending. So when you're looking in Acts chapter 1, we see Jesus leave the earth, ascend into heaven, and the rest of the book of Acts is what did his people do? So all of a sudden, Jesus is no longer here. And Wendy talked about this transition from Jesus' followers having Jesus with them, literally with them, walking with them, teaching them. And then there's all us today and all of these people in the early church, Jesus' followers, who didn't have Jesus with them. And you could imagine, like, okay, I know how to do this with Jesus here, and then he's gone. You're like, okay, now what are we supposed to do? <laughs> like, how does this work? And so there's this transition that happens, and Wendy talked a lot about this. Um, in the book of Acts gives us a picture of the really the early 20 or 30 years of the church's life, the life of Jesus' followers, following Jesus' ascension into heaven. So that's what we get in the book of Acts. And a lot of really cool stuff, a lot of exciting things that we find in the book of Acts. Um, what we notice, if you're looking in Acts chapter 1, so just as Jesus is leaving um, the earth, uh, the, the gospel stories of Jesus' life in the book of Acts tell us that around the time that Jesus left, he had about 100, 120 really close followers, really dedicated followers. So when he ended his ministry, uh, after his resurrection, ascended into heaven, he had about 120 um, really close followers. And then something 
extraordinary happens. Just like Jesus said it would, um, the Holy Spirit shows up, God's Spirit shows up on the scene, enters into his people, and there's this extraordinary day that's often referred to as the beginning of the church that happens. And on that day, these um, friends of Jesus, these close followers of Jesus who had spent significant amount of time with Jesus, learning from him, they walk out into a crowd of thousands of people, and they essentially tell the story of what Jesus accomplished in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And this hu- of this huge crowd of people that they're speaking to, 3,000 people responded to that. They were cut to the heart, and they responded, what on earth do we do? Now that we understand what Jesus accomplished, what do we do? How do we become followers um, of Jesus? And that's uh, the story that we kind of get uh, as we're reading through Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. So referred to as kind of this first beginning thing that happened for the church, the formation of Okay, this new family um, that jumped from 100 or so followers to over 3,000 in this moment. So super exciting times. And at the very end of Acts chapter 2, and this is what we're going to be looking at today, um, just after this 3,000 uh, folks joined in, Luke gives us a picture of what they were doing. So it's a good question. So the, if you were there in that moment and Jesus left and all of a sudden there's thousands of followers of Jesus, what do you do? What do we, how do we spend our time? And so Luke gives us a picture of how these early disciples, this good news, Jesus, faith, community, the new family of God, how they lived and functioned as the church. So the passage that we're going to look at today is, um, it's a little bit long. Uh, It's a couple of different uh, sections from Acts chapter 2. And so what I did is I actually made um, uh, Lectio Divina sheets for you guys. So if somebody would help me, a couple people would help me hand these out. So you guys on the back row back there, you're going to watch for other people coming in and like rush up to them and shove a piece of paper in their hand. So because if they don't have one when they come in, they won't be able to follow along with us. So that's your job, guys. Got that back row. Okay. so um, so here's the challenge for you. Don't read the first half of that page. (laughs) So the passage of scripture that we're looking at from Acts chapter two and chapter four is at the bottom of the page. So if you need to fold that in half, so you're not so distracted. The top part of that are the instructions for doing uh, Lectio Divina or uh, what's called a sacred reading. It's a very old sort of way of processing through and inviting God into an experience of scripture. And so I would encourage you to take that sheet home with you and sometime today or sometime this week, you can do it on your own, you can do it with some friends, Uh, with a group, whatever, but follow through the sort of process for the Lectio Divina. But today, I just wanted you to have it in your hands so that you can see the scripture that we're um, referencing. And uh, if you want to underline things or take notes or whatever, you can do that on that bottom section. So how's everybody doing with not reading the Lectio Divina stuff? (laughs) This was a risk. This is really a gift from me. So if you're like really bored, then you can be like, I'm going to read through this Lectio Divina stuff. (laughs) All right. So... um, So the passages, uh, there's two sections of scripture that we're going to be looking at down there at the bottom of your page, Uh, a section from Acts chapter 2 and a section from Acts uh, chapter 4. So um, you can follow along as uh, as I read down through this stuff. So keep in mind, this is right after these 3,000 folks have become believers and suddenly um, the number of Jesus followers went from 100 or so to over 3,000. So that's the moment that um, we're entering in and Luke gives us a picture of what happens immediately following and in the years, the months and years after this. So this is what uh, Luke writes here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So a great summary of kind of what they devoted themselves to. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the, the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So just a side note for you real quick. Uh, Everyday Church, we started gathering uh, almost eight years ago. This fall will be about eight years. And we, didn't, we were just a group of people meeting in an apartment. We didn't have a name. We, we, didn't, you know, we knew we were following God's leading. Um, we read this passage of scripture and somebody was like, every day. They were getting together doing this church thing every day. Well, what if we called our church every day? So just so you know, this is the origin of the um, everyday church's name. So kind of a cool, cool story. So we're going back to our roots a little bit here. All right. So every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread together in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So then uh, jump forward to Acts chapter 4, which would have been um, within a year or two time, another summary of kind of the way this group of people was functioning um, shortly, uh, not too long after the first section was written. So uh, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. Pretty cool stuff. So there's a whole lot of things that um, we could dive into and process through in this section. A lot of different ideas and concepts and things that we see happening in and among these early believers. Um, too much for us to cover today, but there's a particular word in there that we're going to zoom in on and, uh, and wrestle with as we work through, and actually a word that summarizes a lot of the different elements in these uh, couple of readings and what we continue to see as we're processing through uh, the book of Acts. So Luke summarizes f- uh, things for us pretty nicely in Acts chapter 2. So that first uh, that first sentence uh, is verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. Summarizes things for us pretty, uh, pretty effectively. They devoted themselves to a few specific things. And that devoted word is a pretty strong, heavy word. This isn't like a casual thing. This is like legit um, investing and devoting themselves, giving themselves over to, uh, to these things. So the things that he mentions, uh, the first is to the apostles' teaching. So he's talking there about um, the teaching of the folks who were with Jesus and spent all the time with Jesus through his ministry, that three, three and a half years before he left the earth, the, spe- the followers that were with him the most, his apostles, uh, and the group of people that were with him. They were the ones who experienced Jesus and walked with him. He taught them everything. He shared with them what it looked like to live this sort of Jesus way. Uh, and so he's referring to their teaching. It's important, really important and easy for us to forget that um, at this time and really throughout the entire book of Acts, there was no Bible. So what we hold on to or pull up on our app or whatever that has uh, Bible, especially the New Testament, the Christian scriptures, so the accounts of Jesus' life, uh, the book of Acts, the letters, all of the things that we find and read and study to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus. They didn't have any of that stuff. So they're trying to figure out like, okay, what does it mean to follow Jesus? But they don't have like a resource to go to. So the only thing that they have are the stories that they get from the people who were with Jesus. And they got to spend time with these folks, the original 120 that spent a lot of time and the 12 apostles. 
They spent a lot of time with Jesus. So they went to them and were like, teach us. Let us know what it looks like to follow Jesus. So they dedicated themselves to the teaching of these people who spent so much time um, with Jesus, Jesus' close friends. So um, another thing that they mentioned that they devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. Uh, that phrase, maybe you've used, like, let's break bread together. Some people will say that term. Not super common. Uh, but that phrase, the breaking of bread, is referring to, or it's used to refer to, two things, two different things in um, New Testament scripture, uh, Christian scripture. So the first is just really simply having meals together. So if we break bread, that just means we're having meals. So they dedicated themselves, devoted themselves to breaking bread. That's eating meals together. The other thing that developed over time was that this was used to refer to the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist. This, uh, this meal or the bread and the juice, the bread and the wine that Jesus asked us to use to remember his sacrifice. And so churches all over the place, even to this day, will still do the Lord's Supper communion, this breaking the bread um, thing to commemorate, reenact, and remember this thing that Jesus asked us to do. So they devoted themselves to eating together and also to remembering Jesus through um, the breaking of bread, the bread and the juice. Uh, he also mentions there that they devoted themselves to prayer. So if you were with Jesus through the course of his life, you would see him praying regularly. He taught his followers how to pray. He was regularly talking to God in different sorts of ways. He was often hiding in the woods or running off to somewhere away from town because he needed to pray. And they would search for him and eventually find him and um, ask him, like, what are you doing? Well, he was slipping away to spend time in prayer. So Jesus lived this way and modeled it. So if you spent time with him, you're just going to pick that up, like, clearly, one part of following God and serving God is praying regularly. And so these early believers devoted themselves to prayer. So the other item in that list of four in uh, verse 42 that Luke references uh, is this word fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship. And so being true to this teaching series, we got to ask, what does that mean? What is fellowship? Probably not a word you use, maybe a little bit, but really the depth of this word is not something that we, um, it's not a word that's very common in um, our, our normal conversations. So they were devoted to, this wasn't just like casually bumping into each other, they were devoted to fellowship, to doing whatever this um, word means. And so we need to spend some time wrestling with it, understanding what it's about, and um, getting an idea of why they devoted themselves to this fellowship thing. So. Uh, a little flashback, a long, long time ago on my 12th birthday, um, which would have been over 30 years at this point. So it was, you know, it was a while ago. That went back in the 80s, I guess. So, um, so a long, long time ago. Uh, my 12th birthday, my brother, my older brother is eight years older than me, and uh, I was pretty young. He was, so he would have been 20 or so. He had left home, came home, and um, on my birthday over the summer, he uh, gave me a gift, a pretty extraordinary gift. He gave me the Lord of the Rings book, books. It was actually this um, uh, this softback like box set of the Hobbit and the three Lord of the Rings books, and uh, it was extraordinary. It was like the best gift. I had just started like actually reading for entertainment instead of like forced reading as a child. Um, <laughs> so this was my first experience really at reading things that. Um, captured imagination and transported um, me to this sort of beauty and adventure of this other world, all the fantastic creatures and the locations and the things um, that happened through the course of the story. And so I have been a big fan 
of the Lord of the Rings um, series for a really long time. So like 20, it's almost 20 years now. So you can imagine, flashback to like the late 90s, um, they announced that um, Peter Jackson was going to turn these books into movies. So the Lord of the Rings was going to now be three movies, each like, they're all like three or four hours long. These epic, you know, amazing stories that you can get lost in in the big screen. So, um, so I waited with anticipation. I was following the production schedule, uh, you know, totally geeking out on Lord of the Rings uh, movie and this concept. So the book, the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring is the name of the first book. Um, that movie was released Christmas of 2001. And it is on the top list of Christmas gifts, best Christmas gifts ever for me. Like for them to arrange it to be like this Christmas gift that they handed to me on um, Christmas of 2001, it was, it was incredible. And I had to see it on the first day. I don't even remember how many times I saw it in the theater. Um, I've seen it dozens of times. My children were little itty bitty little girls and they were watching Lord of the Rings with me. You know, peaceful orcs and you know, monsters and stuff. You know, it's a good way. So if you ever wonder what is wrong with my children, <laughs> Lord of the Rings, that's the problem. So if you don't know anything about um, these stories, um, I, like I could put you through an agonizing hour or more of um, telling the story of the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, but that, that term, the book title Fellowship of the Ring, doesn't really give you a whole lot of um, information about the story. So especially knowing that fellowship is not a word that we really understand or think very much about, it's certainly not to the depth that um, that word carries. So uh, I'm not gonna, you know, put you through the pain, but I will, um, I'll sum it up for you because it's, uh, it's important that you understand what the Fellowship of the Ring is all about. This has nothing to do with my message. I just felt obligated to tell you. It does, actually. It'll all make sense, I hope, in a bit. So in uh, the Fellowship of the Ring and the Lord of the Rings series, there is this small golden ring that has the power to enslave basically all of the creatures in Middle-earth, the world that this is set in. Uh, and this golden ring has the power to control people, to destroy all living creatures. And so, you know, the good guys decide that we can't let this happen, and so we need to destroy this ring. And so the Fellowship of the Ring is the beginning of this journey to destroy this ring. And so there is this group of, um, of creatures, essentially, elves and dwarves, and uh, there's some hobbits in there, some regular humans, there's Dunedain, um, king, guy that nobody knows is a king. It's really great. Aragorn. So, um, anyway. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. The last book is The Return of the King. You're not supposed to know until the third book. So, anyways, Aragorn is on the team, too. So, this group of creatures and humans get together, and they go on this epic quest to destroy the ring, to get rid of this thing, to free all of Middle-earth from um, the, the sort of dark forces that are at work. So they begin this perilous journey to Mordor. It's the mountain where the ring was created. It's like the center of the dark sort of kingdom in Middle-earth. And so they got a journey there. And uh, the story, the Fellowship of the Ring, is the beginning of that journey um, towards destroying the ring. So the members of this group come from like literally in, in that sort of world, different races, races of creatures. So they're elves and dwarves, and they have like different worldviews, different cultures, they come from different places, they care about different things, they have different strengths and abilities, some are little and some are big and some are strong and some are weak and some are smart and some are dumb and what, you know, they all have like these different sort of strengths and abilities 
um, different sort of uh, personalities, all of this, these differences. And yet, in spite of their differences, this incredible thing happens as they're traveling on this journey together. They're working and playing together. They're having fun. They're laughing. They're protecting each other. They're fight, fighting against uh, evil forces. All of these sorts of things are happening on this journey, and it's a pretty epic sort of thing that is, um, that is happening. And in the midst of this travel and this journey, extraordinary relationship and connection begins to happen. And they are referred to as the Fellowship of the Ring the fellowship surrounding this mission to destroy um, the ring. So that word fellowship can't really be given a simple definition. It's not a single thing. You couldn't say the fellowship of the ring is one sort of thing. And the same is true for us. That idea of fellowship is something that goes beyond a simple understanding or a simple meaning. In fact, in the same way that it was for them, fellowship is all of the stuff that we do together. It's the planning and preparing and the work that we do to help our community and our, us as a church and a community around us to thrive. It's um, getting together in people's homes and at restaurants for meals, sharing meals together, sharing conversations. It's getting together to watch the World Cup game and play sports together. It's helping people move. I think there was a crowd of people that showed up at Amy's place last night to help her move to her new apartment. It's all of these different sorts of things that we do together. It's walking with each other through the fun and the easy stuff in life. It's walking in life together through the really difficult times and the trouble and the pain that we experience. The fellowship is all of the things that we do together that build our relationships and our connections with one another. So my hope really today is that as we kind of dig into this word fellowship, that you'll get a better picture of what God was creating when he formed this family, this body, this thing that we do together, his church, uh, and why, it is, why we talk so much about relationships, why it's so critical that we spend time together and we eat meals together and all these different sort of things that we do to make sure um, that we know each other well and love one another well. So, uh, so let's zoom in on that word fellowship for a few minutes here. So one of the challenges for us in uh, reading scripture, so if you're reading through scripture, something to keep in mind, uh, it was written and the language that Jesus and his followers spoke was not English or Spanish or any of the languages that are represented in this room. And scripture was not originally written a couple thousand years ago in any language that we use today. So the book of Acts and the stuff that we're reading right now was actually written in a Greek language that there are people who know Greek because they study ancient languages, but it's not something that anyone really understands this language unless you're specifically studying these old and forgotten languages. So it's a challenge for us as we're, uh, as we're studying and trying to understand what we encounter in scripture because part of the issue is that we're written in different languages and the words had different meaning and it's very difficult to take, as we've talked about, take language from one, a word from one language and easily translate it into another. We run into that challenge even here in our church as we're processing through the different languages that we speak. So, um, so that word fellowship is actually the word koinonia. Uh, that's the phrase or the term that is used that's translated in this passage that we're looking at as fellowship. So koinonia is here translated as fellowship, but it's also translated as lots of other words. So if you looked up koinonia and all of the different variations on that word, the short forms and longer forms of that word, and you looked at all that stuff through scripture, you'd see a lot, you wouldn't just see fellowship every time because that doesn't 
do it. It's a, it's a weak word. It doesn't represent all that uh, koinonia represents. So there's lots of other words that are translated as koinonia. And so here are a few of the other words that we encounter when we run into koinonia in scripture. So fellowship, um, to partner, partnership, um, to be partners, to share and sharing, uh, to participate. Communion is actually a word sometimes that is um, used to convey the idea of koinonia. Um, common owners, that we own something together to contribute and contribution. Giving and receiving, this idea of koinonia isn't just this one-way thing, it's this to a giving and a receiving. And so, as you look at these different words, you start to get a bigger picture of what they devoted themselves to. And that's really what we need to get our minds around um, today. That this koinonia thing that these early followers of Jesus devoted themselves to was a huge concept and something much more than just uh, this fellowship word that lacks a lot of meaning for us today. So my best attempt um, at summing up the word koinonia for you, so if I were just to say, what's the maybe easiest, simplest way to understand this, would be um, that koinonia is sharing life. And we'll see that we're going to read back through Acts chapter 2 and 4 again. Uh, this idea simply of sharing life. It wasn't just an exchange. It wasn't just bumping into each other. It was really this, they devoted themselves to sharing their lives with one another. So koinonia fellowship, it's all the stuff that we do in this journey of life together, all the ways that we share uh, our lives. And you'll realize as you, uh, and you've probably experienced this in your own faith, there's a lot of things as Christians that we can do on our own. We can pray on our own. We can study scripture on our own. We can, uh, we can worship on our own. There's lots of things that can be this sort of solo, isolated experience. Koinonia, can't do it alone. You can't share your lives with others by yourself. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. In its very meaning, it is together, community, connecting, sharing. It requires a level of relationship and connectedness between us that isn't it doesn't just happen, especially in, um, in our society. So let's, um, let's take a look again at Acts chapter 2 and just read down through um, the same passage. You can pull your paper out again. And let's just read down through this again, thinking about what you now know of this idea of koinonia, of what that word fellowship really means. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to remembering Jesus, to the fellowship, to koinonia, to sharing their lives, they devoted themselves to sharing their lives, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All the believers were one in heart and in mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. You get, start to capture the picture of what Luke is trying to paint there the level of relationships. They were sharing their lives. They were together. They weren't separated. They were spending and investing their time together in um, relationship. And if you look through the rest of the book of Acts, you will be very hard pressed to find Christians alone. There are very, very few situations in the early church that we read about in scripture where Christians were on their own 
were doing anything by themselves. Almost everything that we read about is Christians together, doing it together, facing it together, tackling it together, figuring it out, praying about it, wrestling with it together, always together in relationship and sharing um, their lives. And it's no surprise because that's exactly how Jesus lived his life. You can look at the accounts of Jesus' life. He was constantly with people together, sharing the journey and the experience um, together. So I want to just glance quickly at a couple of different passages through uh, New Testament scripture and um, that just give different perspectives or different angles on this idea of koinonia. I think they feed into the same concept of, um, of sharing life. So the first one that uh, we'll take a look at is John chapter 17. So in John chapter 17, this is John, a very close friend of Jesus, sharing an account of Jesus' life. And uh, he shares a prayer that Jesus prays to, uh, really just a few hours before Jesus is arrested and convicted and crucified. And so um, Jesus uh, is praying first for his close friends and followers, his disciples, and then he begins to expand it to pray for us, really, everybody who will believe in Jesus uh, in the future. So take a look at John chapter 20, or excuse me, chapter 17, verse 21, 20 and 21. <clears throat> Jesus said, my prayer is not for them alone, so not for just my friends and disciples that are with me. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Now, Jesus is tapping into an incredible mystery here. So scripture in Scripture, Jesus reveals him, God reveals himself as one God, but three distinct parts. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three individual distinct beings forming one God in community. That's mysterious. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't fit into our mind to understand they're one being, but they're three, and they have different names, and they talk to each other. That's a little mysterious is a nice way to put that. But that is the way that God presents himself. That's the way he reveals himself to us through Scripture and the stories that we, we read. So Jesus, in this prayer, is saying, I pray the same thing for them. That the same way that God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct and different individuals, but one form, one God, that in that same mysterious way, we who are distinct and individual and bring all of ourself, our individual unique self, into this thing, we form one. We are one. We have that kind of unity. Really cool um, picture that Jesus is painting for us there. So take a look at Romans um, Chapter 12, this is most likely Paul writing the letter to Christians in Rome. And this is what um, Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. Just as each of us has one body with many members, so in Christ we who are many form one body. And each of the members belongs to all the other. So this is a concept, an analogy that we see show up throughout um, Scripture, this idea that we are um, the body of Christ, that we're the body of Jesus present and alive in the world. And it's the same idea. The same way that my body has lots of different parts, they're all one. Even though they're different, they're all one body. That's the same for us. Even though we're lots of different parts, lots of different people, we form one body. And we can't get along without each other. The parts of the body can't survive on their own. They need to be together. This koinonia concept isn't an option for us. It is in the very life of the church, life of Christians in the body of Christ. Okay, so take a look at um, Hebrews chapter 10. So this, uh, this verse, verses that we're going to look at here from Hebrews, 
This is a letter that was written uh, to uh, Jewish Christians, to Hebrew Christians, um, shortly, sometime after Jesus' uh, Jesus' life. And the writer of this letter uh, says this. Let's read uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. So that's a cool line. Like, think about that. Let's think about, let's actually spend time thinking, how can we encourage one another to love better and to do good things in the world? Like, let's spend some time investing and thinking about ways to motivate one another in that way. And then he says, let us not neglect our meeting together, getting together, gathering together, spending time together. Let's, Let's not neglect that stuff, as some people do, but... Let's get together and encourage one another. So um, oftentimes, and I think that you guys can relate to this, oftentimes there are, uh, we face things in life, difficulties or dark times in our life, when our instinct is to withdraw. So this is not easy. Things aren't going well for me. I'm just going to hide out in my apartment or whatever. So in one of those seasons in my life, in a particularly um, dark time in my life years ago, all I wanted to do was avoid people. I didn't want to invest, I didn't want to engage, I didn't want to spend time with people, I just wanted to find a way to distract myself from my own difficulty and pain and sadness. And in that moment, and God does this to us sometimes, in that moment, God was like, hey, you ever heard of koinonia? And uh, it wasn't, his phrase wasn't quite like that, but essentially this is what God did. He pushed me into this concept of koinonia. It was the first time in my life that I'd really wrestled with this concept and this verse from Hebrews and what um, the writer of Hebrews was trying to, uh, to tap into here, that in, um, in the midst of my difficulty and my pain, my sadness, my weakness, this dark sort of time in my life, that instead of hiding from people and withdrawing, that what God wanted me to do was push into relationships with people, let people in so that I could encourage them and build them up and they could encourage me and build me up. And that is a beautiful thing when you experience it, that we think that the right thing to do is to withdraw and hide, but what God calls us to is to receive the gift of the community and the family that we have, to allow them to walk with us and to walk with them and to encourage and to share our lives, even in the midst of um, the difficulty. So let us not neglect being together as we are all prone to do but instead gather together to encourage one another, to share our lives, to be truly present with one another. So in that same uh, sort of season of my life, uh, we were a part of a church back in the Midwest, a smaller faith community that we were a part of there. And uh, we coined a phrase uh, that we called the fellowship question. And it was kind of goofy and fun and whatever, but it kind of stuck. This was like, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. And every once in a while, I'll run into somebody that I knew that was a part of that church, and they'll be like, somehow the fellowship question will come up, and we'll kind of laugh about it because it's, it's kind of funny. So uh, anyways, we coined um, this phrase. And this was in the midst of my own trying to figure out this whole koinonia thing, that most of us are accustomed to asking ourselves, do we feel like it? Do I feel like it? Do I need what's going on? Do I need to get together with other people? Do I need, do I, do I have the energy? We sort of ask these kind of questions. That's what we do normally in life with anything. And what we decided to do instead with this fellowship question was to give ourselves a, like a safety check to say, okay, I'm t- my tendency is to withdraw. To, do I need it? Do I want to go? Do I really want to hang out with people? But instead we'd ask the fellowship question. And this is what, um, this is how it went. Is there somebody there who needs me to be there? So, is there somebody at that thing, whatever that thing is, 
that needs me to be there. And we would ask ourselves that question in a gracious sort of way, not in a guilting sort of like, oh, there's because there's always somebody who needs you to be there. And if that's your motivation, then you're never going to sit still and you're going to, you know, run dry. But we would ask ourselves this question to um, just to help give a different sort of perspective. I may not want or need to gather together on a Sunday morning. I may not feel up to a meal or an event or a class or a workshop or emotionally healthy relationships or all the different things that we do, picnic next week or whatever it is. I may not feel up to that, but is there somebody there who needs us to show up, that needs me to be present? Maybe they need somebody to cry with or somebody to give them a hug or to laugh with them. Maybe they need somebody to meet a friend that they finally had a chance to connect with their faith family or a family member, or maybe they just need encouragement to be lifted up and somebody to carry the burdens of the difficulty of their life. Is there someone um, there who needs me to be there? So here um, in this vein, take a look at what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. This is verse 3 and 4. Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That is one of those not so comfortable passages of scripture. <laughs> You're like, oh, what? No, I'm supposed to look to my own interests first. I'm supposed to care about myself first and foremost. And other people's needs or wants or what's going on in other people's life is secondary. But that's not really how it works with koinonia. This koinonia idea is actually that true fellowship, true koinonia says that the needs of other people are as important as my own needs. So a quick disclaimer to um, the fellowship question. Just um, I want you to hear this uh, because this is important. There are lots of emotionally healthy questions we need to ask ourselves before we engage or commit or get involved in things. This is not the only question that you ask. If this is the only question, then you actually become an unhealthy person who is only living based on the needs of other people and not reflecting and looking at what God needs to do inside of you. And in my case, always helping, but not easily receiving help from other people. So this is not the only question that we ask, but there is something powerful that happens when we begin to open our mind to this koinonia concept. And I think this lighthearted sort of fellowship question helps us do that. So by asking the fellowship question, will there be somebody there that needs me to be there? We begin to open the door for the Holy Spirit to respond to that question and to lead us in the decisions that we make and the way that we function in our life. We begin to sense what Jesus intended for the world, that other people's needs are as important as my own, that the concerns in other people's lives are important. And if you're Paul, you would say, "Mm, sometimes even more important than our needs and our desires and our interests in life. So um, funny thought that hit me as I was sort of wrestling with this koinonia idea. So a long, long time ago, I think Jesus asked himself the fellowship question. I don't know if you thought of it this way, um, and he probably didn't ask himself the exact fellowship question, but this concept of the fellowship question, that he asked himself, is there somebody there who needs me to be there? And he knew in an instant that yes, we desperately needed someone to rescue us. And so Jesus set aside his own wants and his needs and what was easiest and comfortable for him. He set all that stuff aside, and he came to earth, and he lived a very difficult life. He was murdered. He was killed by people who rejected and hated him. And he did all of that because we needed somebody 
to rescue us, to make a way for us to be restored in relationship with God our Father. So uh, I mentioned earlier that this is one of uh, my favorite concepts in Scripture and that I think this is really critical for us if we ever want to be the church that God um, dreams of, that Jesus intended for us to be. And I don't say that stuff like lightly or flippantly because this is the topic um, for today. And I don't think that Luke used the word devoted lightly. When he said they devoted themselves to a few things, they devoted themselves to fellowship, to koinonia, to connecting and investing and in sharing their lives with one another. I don't think that he chose that word or concept lightly. That our relationship with one another and with the world around us, I think, is our one shot at showing the world what God intended for the world to be like. Our relationships and connections and the way we love and care for one another, one another, this is our way of illustrating and revealing to the world that God had a better way than the mess that we see in the world around us. That God intended for us to love and care for one another in a way that doesn't make sense. It's a mystery that we could have the kind of connection and relationship and concern for one another. And our best shot at revealing that is by koinonia. It's by sharing our lives and learning how to love one another well and care for one another and investing and asking the fellowship question, is there somebody that needs me to be there so that we can show up and be present in the lives of one another and the world around us. So I love the way that um, Daryl Gruder is an author, uh, wrote the book Missional Church, and I just want to read the way he sort of phrased um, this. When the Holy Spirit transforms the life and practice of Christian communities, so like us, a Christian community, everyday church, when the Holy Spirit transforms the life and practice of Christian communities, they demonstrate that God's promised future has been set in motion. The joy, the freedom, the wholeness of life within the reign of God can already be tasted even if it's not yet fully realized. And that line in the middle there, God's promised future has been set in motion, is a beautiful word, phrase. That God reveals to, through us in the way we connect and love and care for one another his promised future, what he intended from the beginning for humans to experience in relationship with God and relationship with one another. That is what this koinonia concept, when it says they devoted themselves to fellowship, they devoted themselves to sharing their lives, that's what, um, what Luke was talking about. That God himself takes our common, everyday, messy sort of lives, he joins us together in this deep, incredible community, and then he turns us into something that reveals the very nature and beauty and love, compassion and grace of God. And people see that in the way we function as the church. Okay, I want to, um, to end just uh, praying a prayer for us, specifically about this idea of koinonia. So band, you guys can come up while I'm, while I'm praying here. So I want to pray for us as, uh, as we wrap things up today. <clears throat> God, the Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, you are a mystery to us. You have revealed yourself to us in scripture as three distinct individual beings and yet one God. It is a mystery that is difficult for us to get our minds around. And Jesus, you prayed for us that we would have that same kind of mysterious unity, that same kind of mysterious, unworldly, inhuman kind of relationship and connection and love and care for one another that the world 
would see. And so I pray, we pray that you would teach us how to share our lives, to love, to care for one another the way that you intended for us to do, and that our neighbors and our friends and our family and the world and the city around us would see our unity and that they would get a glimpse of your way, God, of what you're up to in the world, of your promises, of your love, of what you intend for us to experience in relationship with one another and in restored relationship with you. And so it is in uh, your name, Jesus, that we ask these things. Amen.